Hi, this is Mary H.K. Choi, and you're listening to Hey Cool Job. My guest today is Hassan Rahim, the artist and art director based out of New York by way of Los Angeles. He is the founder of 1201, a full-service creative studio, and has collaborated with Nike, Marilyn Manson, and the New York Times. He is a legend amongst the graphic design cognizanti. I have personally witnessed artsy humans lose their shit in his presence, and his email bounces back with an out-of-office responder 100% of the time. I'm in love with my life. Hi, Hassan. Hi, Mary. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, so yeah, just on a scale of one to 10, just vibrationally speaking, how is this week going for you? I'm going to like use the Richter scale. Okay, wow. And I think we're going to use the scale of one to 10 invertedly from okay. uh, one being pretty good and like less shaky and 10 being like a very catastrophic, like uh, government level catastrophe. And I think it's a 4.5. Okay, so that gives me an indication of the fact that we are on the Richter scale, so there are tremors happening. Absolutely. But they could be more <laughs> severe. Um, but I think that makes sense, astrologically speaking. Yeah, I think a 4.5 is fine. Like, I think a couple pictures fell off the wall, like some cans of soup in the, you know, cleanup on aisle three right. at Vaughn's. Um, and then maybe, like, one guy broke his leg or something. So you called your family to check in, but you didn't, like, text, like, the exes to, like talk about like confessions or like intentions or anything like that i didn't send any like i've always loved you texts (laughs) um or like i wish you this worked out Uh, yeah or like i have this like apology to make to you um so as far as today goes what ingredients were you delivered in your brain as far as like what you want to focus your energies on and or any sort of like anxious thoughts ruminating or anything you know when you like wake up and it's like a a competitive reality cooking show and you just have a bunch of ingredients like i do what's your brain ingredients today i think there's always like as somebody that's independent um there's always an stress as an ingredient it's almost like a it's a mainstay right so it depends like the levels are are so and so but i also woke up with um a little bit of hope and I'm not sure what it was for, but I had it. Um, <laughs> another ingredient was like crust in my eyes. I don't know if that's an emotion, <laughs> but I, I think like the same way like ashy can be a, an emotion. I think I had crusty eyes today. Mm. That was like pretty emotional ingredient. It is interesting that I know you from here, but there is something so distinctly LA about like your eye and your voice. Do you think, you know, you've been here for how long now? Oh my God, it's going to be my fifth year. Right. So that you've like gone and like taken in some of like the the vibes of this place and like the, the metals and the ions and stuff. Like has New York gone inside of you in any way as it relates to either your aesthetic or your practice? Because New York is a very fucking different energy. The energy here is extremely different. And for sure it's gotten inside of me. I can't really dissect exactly how, but I know that one thing that is inevitable is pace. Mm. And um, things move inherently faster here, no matter what. It wasn't until I lived here that I understood a New York minute. Um, when I lived in LA, it was a lot 
simpler. I'd kind of wake up around 10 and get a green juice and then I'd <laughs> kind of go drive to like my Krav Maga class at the time. And then I'd get lunch for two hours with somebody. And then probably around like three, I was like hitting the studio and then I'd stay till seven, we'd get some pizza and then I'd go back and stay another like two hours. And that was my day. It was like a total of six to seven hours of work accumulatively, but um, it was just paced so differently. And um, it's, I think also LA is destination based as far as geography goes. And I've sure. mentioned this before, but New York is uh, somewhere that you can walk and be on foot and run into people. And there's a different attention span associated with that stuff. So I think in LA, it's a little bit more deliberate um, in where you're gonna go for the day. Um, there's not a spontaneity associated with uh, planning your afternoon. Right. Um, sometimes there is, but it's it's really pocketed. If you're like, I'm going to be in Chinatown, I'm going to run into X, Y, and Z, so and so. But uh, here, I've I think that it contributes to my work, um, not only from the pace, but maybe the competition. Mm. And I'm not personally. I don't see myself as super competitive, but it is interesting when there's like a large pool of people. And everyone's kind of up for the same things. I think in LA, there was a, a lot less graphic designers at the time when I lived there or in art directors. Mm -hmm. But in New York, there's kind of a lot of people. And I think in a way, they're all actually friends too. Right. Which is really, really interesting. Yeah. And that's, it's a beautiful thing about New York because you are constantly like imbuing each other with like different flavors and like you're kind of like off gassing and then like kind of huffing other people's energies constantly. Exactly. But it is, it's funny that you're totally right about LA because you do have to plan like the 405 is the 405 is the 405, you know, like yes. th these things are just very real. But with New York, that sort of potentiality is always existing. Like you can be in the right place for a hundred things at the same time. And so you can, if you do one, you, f you can feel like you're late or wrong about 99 things. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> which is, exactly. Which is kind of wild. Um, That's funny. Yeah, it's, it's so intense. And I think sort of managing that, especially as freelancers, because we are kings of our own like kingdoms in terms of like what we spend time on. Yeah. And that, that gets really real. I think that's another thing too, is like with the attention span associated with New York, there's a lot of things pulling me in a lot of different directions mm. at all times. And uh, it's hard to just sit down and focus. I think in LA, you are essentially a lot more siloed. So my studio was just in the arts district, which is now insane. It's insane like, now. It's like Venice Beach. Yeah. It's like Abbott Kinney. It's kind of fucked actually, but um, you know, whatever. I think the landlord we had was always super nice and he kept artists in the building and stuff. And we were pretty grateful for that. But regardless, it was not, there wasn't too many people around. So I'd a little bit isolated, <laughs> you know, and I think I can just, I'm there, I got to get work done. But I think uh, my studio currently is in Williamsburg, which is absolutely has to move. I think I cannot do it. But I go downstairs and there's all these food options. It's awesome. I think a lot of people are in Williamsburg more often. Um, and they're like, hey, let's get lunch. And I think there's all, there's just too many things to pull me away from work and focus through, like throughout the daytime. Mm. I'm also like a five minute walk to the water to where Domino Park is. Yeah. It's not, it's good. If you have like a really good work ethic and you can just sit down and focus for six hours and then get up and take a break, it's cool. But I'm like a puppy attention span. <laughs> and if I see like a stick over there, I'm gonna run to the stick, but halfway there, I'm gonna see a tennis ball. I'm gonna go that way. But you've talked about this before. Like we've talked about, um, you know, attention spans. And also we've talked about procrastination. Yes. 
at what point, like you are, you do have enough experience at this point. Like, do you have surrender and serenity around the fact that like, you might not be like outputting the work, but you're working on it. Yeah, I do have serenity towards that. I think that that's something that I'm pretty upfront about with people. I think it's when you have the typical, we need this ASAP. Um, our turnaround is extremely fast. Um, you know, the typical client jargon where they're just like, yeah, we need to like bang this thing out and we promise you it's going to be so simple. And it's never that simple. <laughs> and I was like, I promise you what you think is simple. It takes a lot more effort to get to than what is actually visually more complicated. Um, because too much goes into it. I think people see something minimal and they're like, oh yeah, just put the type there and left align it and throw it in the top and make the background purple and send it to print. And I'm like, no. Right. <laughs> God, no. God, no. Yeah. I was like, if it's that simple, like there's way more that went into it from like the, what kind of purple are you using? Is there a gradient to the purple to give it some effect? Is there a ligature? What's the black? Why would you use normal black? Let's use a rich black. Or maybe let's use ultra black U, which is like a warm black. And then what kind of paper is it? And it's all these things that they're like, I thought it was going to be simple. And I'm like, no, sorry. And I think that for my own sanity, I, I can't half-ass anything. So that's for the benefit of not only them, but for me. I think there's been projects I've worked on where I'm like, you know what, I can just turn this in, but I will absolutely hate myself. And I'm basically like my number one uh, critic. So I'm like, no, we're going to do this the quote unquote hard way, but the good way. So that's really tricky. I was going to ask you a question about how you reconcile being both an artist with an art practice and being like an art director. And it seems to me that you just are an, an artist, actually. <laughs> You're an artist <laughs> with clients is what it sounds like. That's like, I think that's the best way to put it at this point. And I've been coming to terms with that because um, a lot goes into these things. And, um, you know, I think I really do have an art practice that I create design work for in a way it's it's really interesting but i'll get back to you in that question in like six months okay okay <laughs> perfect you're like i'm i'm working on reconciling this um, totally what kind of kid were you this is like a little emotional thing i wrote <laughs> so you're the kind of kid who prepares our answers okay i'm the kind of kid that had to really think about what kind of kid i was and i think uh a lot of that also comes down to different processes I've been going through and like understanding things that happened to me at an early age and things that happened to me now and, you know, going to therapy and like reconciling with the past and the present and the future. And I wrote a little something, but give me a second. So what kind of kid was I? I was a nice kid. I was the type of kid to say hi to strangers on the street, an innocent kid that understood the worst dangers of the world, yet always found a way to remain open, to remain curious, to always be hopeful. I was the type of kid that didn't quite understand how bad his situation was at home because I was always outside at all hours of the day. Outside felt like freedom. Outside was always a safer place. I was the type of kid that waited behind for a friend to tie their shoe while everyone else proceeded ahead. The type of kid that didn't have a dollar to his name, still the type of kid to give my dollar to someone else who needed it more. Inside me still lives that kid through many iterations across time, encapsulated into my core of a being. All the kids with all the adults sit at a big round table and together they form all thoughts, make all decisions and connect with one another to experience each new day, one day at a time. That's such a like 
prayer for like all the iterations that you like can hope to maintain and preserve. Like it's all the versions that get a, a seat at the table kind of. Yeah. I think I, I was just sitting down thinking about what kind of kid I was. And I think one process I've been going through is understanding how decisions are made as an adult and what part of you helps contribute to those decisions. And oftentimes uh, a part of you that takes offense to certain things or maybe prefers something over another, but sometimes it's your child self making those decisions. And, you know, I think back to like, what would nine-year-old Hassan that had nothing to his name and just a skateboard and, you know, one or two friends think of the way this person is talking to me. And what the adult Hassan understands is that this is nothing personal. This is logical. Sometimes whether it's business or whatever, it's just a conversation, but there's always deep down this sort of like the younger Hassan that, you know, is, takes it a certain way or a different, different way. And those experiences always stay with you. So I think inherently what kind of kid I was is the type of person I am today in a lot of small ways. Mm. And those iterations across time are, I don't know, this like tesseract of all your past selves that just contribute to who you are today and that changes every minute. It's so true and it's kind of like this incredible luxury that we have as artists where almost like finding pie for that tesseract is like what we're doing and that's like all we're doing. Um, totally. And it takes being introspective in a way that like... And I, super vulnerable, like so vulnerable. Yeah, and a lot. Of, I think in a, a lot of ways it's uh, it's not very comfortable for a lot of people and they refuse to look at that. But I think like, I think you and I had a conversation at some point, it might have been you and I, but um, we were talking about what does an adult temper tantrum look like? Mm. It might have been, uh, I think I had this conversation with Jenna. Sorry, Jenna Wortham. No, which is fair. I mean, these are the th sort of things that are like very, very present in me and Jenna's daily conversation. Yeah, and I, I kind of see some people that like lash out in certain ways over something or I've had people send me a wild email because of something that I'm just not interested in or don't want to do. And what it is, is they're literally th throwing their body on the floor in the grocery store and stomping their feet because their mom won't buy them Skittles. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't want to do this thing. We're grownups, but they're just, you know, I think people handle things in different ways. And I try to connect that with like, okay, this is part of who we are or have always been or used to be. How did the skateboarding fit into your life? So you're a nine, you want to be outside in where you were growing up. Like, what does it mean to be a skater in your particular, like microcosm of a community? Totally. So I grew up in Orange County, which I think my parents thought was the answer because they were like, we're going to try to bring our kids to a nicer neighborhood. And when I say Orange County, this isn't like Laguna Hills. This isn't Misha Barton and shit. This is Stanton, Anaheim you know, Garden Grove and stuff. But um, so I lived in like Fullerton for a little while, which is like semi-nice. Um, and uh, I was really the only black kid that skated. So that was a problem. Sure. Um, but it was also like this escapism. I think skateboarding was escapism to a certain extent. And uh, with my community of friends, like that's all we had, I think. Everyone was just kind of like, they came from all walks of life. Like there was... Uh, you know, handicapped kids that skated. There was all types of like really small children that wore helmets and like older guys that were 40. And we just kind of all chilled at the skate park. 
Um, and it was kind of nice. It was really cool. Um, but skateboarding played a big part of my life because that was just like this escapism. I think I was always free when I skateboarded. And like, when did you find art? And like, you know, you've called it like fucking around on the computer before, but like, when, yes. when does that sort of thing happen? And when do you realize that you can be engrossed in it? I think it was through skateboarding. So like I was, I wasn't one of those kids that like threw themselves down like 20 stairs and stuff, which was pretty crazy. <laughs> uh, and I had tons of them and they were like really good. But to, at a certain point, they were the ones that were like smashing their boards and really uh, like, you know, we call it focusing your board when you just break, <laughs> you just break it and you're just pissed because you can't land this trick. And I never had that connection with skateboarding. I was more into like the style and the vibe and the artwork and the brands that, you know, had really cool skateboarders. So um, I think inherently I was like attracted to certain graphics and stuff. So when I first got on a computer, I lived in a group home at the time. That was my first access to like a computer. And they basically were like, yeah, you have like computer time. And if I was good, I could have more computer time. So I down, I like got super savvy and I downloaded like Kazaa and then LimeWire and then Fruity Loops <laughs> and then Photoshop and then Illustrator and all this shit. And uh, I actually really wanted to do music. So I started playing around with like Fruity Loops and stuff, but I just didn't catch on the same way I caught on visually. Like my, I guess, uh, capabilities for like creating stuff visually far exceeded the music thing. What was the software program that kind of changed your life? Photoshop. Okay. Photoshop. Yeah, so basically I, um, yeah, I just started messing around on there with the intention of creating skateboard graphics. So, and then it sort of kind of happens in this roundabout way, like Nick Trichet from Diamond Supply Company hits you up, I think through MySpace, and is like, hey, are you down to do graphics? And like, Diamond Supply, like people know, it's so funny, there's like two iterations. People know the skate stuff, and then people know just like that post Fairfax, like. Thank you for saying that, yes. You know, it's like a very <laughs> clear divide. But the, 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 the skate history is like very real. And so the founder of this company hits you up and wants you to do a graphic. And then you flip this like Iron Maiden graphic, and it goes completely like viral. Yeah. But when he hits you up, this is what I want to figure out. You're like 17 or something? Yeah, something like that. 16 maybe. How how are you ready for that moment? Did you have the graphic? Did you make the graphic? How are you not just like, I'm going to shame spiral and not respond. I'm going to shoot myself in the foot on this. Like, Like, how did that happen internally? Oh, I wasn't ready. That's for sure. Okay. Um, that th I think there's people that are like, I, I'm waiting for this moment. I can't wait for it to happen. But um, I was just putting stuff on my MySpace page. <laughs> I wasn't like trying to do stuff. I didn't know you could do stuff like that um, and get paid. I mean, I, I kind of understood you could, but um, I didn't know how that happens or where it started. And I'm like 16 and people feed into your head that you have to go to art school or like nothing's valid. And uh, basically he hits me up and I'm like, uh, <laughs> right, because that's like a moment. It's like an inflection point. Yeah, totally. And like at that time, like I didn't have this. Um... Okay, at that time, I understood what I liked to make, but I wasn't. I didn't have like that strong artistic vision. I'm just messing around, right? Um, so I'm like, what do you, what do you want to do? Like, what should we do? Do you have any ideas? He's like, no, do your thing. And I'm like, and then that's when you shame spiral. And I'm like, ah. So I definitely like started throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall and he was like, this doesn't look like your other stuff. And I was like, okay, like, let's just do this. And he's like, okay, cool. So we took one of the things I already made and ran that as like a wheel graphic. Mm. He had a wheel company called Fillmore. I don't know if it's still around, but, 
um, yeah, it was like actual skate hardware. So I made a wheel graphic and then um, that went well. And then we did a couple other things. It was like a t-shirt and then another t-shirt and then it was the Iron Maiden one. And I was like, oh, yo. Wow. After I did that Iron Maiden shirt, I hit him up. I was like, yo, I'm trying to get the hell out of Orange County. Like, I don't really know you, but can I just stay on your couch for a month? And he's like, yeah, awesome. And that was just kind of the skate community thing that was totally okay. And at the time, there was this guy also staying in his house named Jimmy Gorecki. He skated for ice cream. So I was like geeked out. I was like, well, you got like this guy that skates for Pharrell. <laughs> also, I had mixed feelings about Pharrell the whole time as a skateboarder because. Well, I, do you remember that plain gravy t shirt? Um, what, what does it say? Like, Pharrell can't skate? That was yes. <laughs> Exactly. That was how I felt. I was, but also I think what it was about Pharrell skateboarding and like I'm the biggest Pharrell music fan was um, it kind of got all the like people that weren't into skateboarding totally into skateboarding. And the same people that used to pick on me or tease me or like punk me for like being a black kid that skated were all now black kids that wanted to skate. Well, actually, it's funny. Like that's the part that I feel like maybe um, listeners won't fully appreciate, like how how genuinely specific it was for you to be skating at nine you know what i mean yeah. like it was a, like kanye tweeted um that we was khalifa like i made it so we can wear tight pants do you remember that in like 2016 <laughs> yes he was on the, like him and cuddy or whatever but Yo. like that was a real thing like people genuinely like the culture was not wearing tight pants the culture was not skating that was like not a thing yeah absolutely yeah it was an aesthetic thing and that was like um Everyone was, it was when like Zoomies started yeah, popping totally. up in every mall. And yeah, like, totally. There was like an active in every mall and kids could go to the mall. Well, it's it's and, that whole like when Karma Loop happened sort of like era. <laughs> Karma Loop. So, um, so you go and you stay in this guy's house. How do you, how do you pivot that into like a, like a viable career? Because apprenticeships are nice room and board is nice, but you're out there doing graphic design for like basically couch space. Like how do you change that? And how do you ask for what you need in that moment? Yeah. The reality is I didn't get paid to do graphic design like to on a livable level. Um, so I was just working retail. Like as soon as I got to LA, I just got a job at American Apparel. It was like the, <laughs> the job. One? That, uh, which one? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Hollywood and Highland. Okay. That's a good one. Is it? Yeah. I mean, sure. Like anyone chill. in that area, like Totally. We had this manager named Jason and he just really didn't care. He was my guy. He's like, yeah, dude, whatever. It's cool. It was just, that was his vibe to everything. And I was like, yeah, I'm a little hungover. He's like, yeah. Well, that's, that's whatever. the aesthetic. Yeah, it totally. was the aesthetic, but eventually he got let go and then I got transferred and then it was like way too serious and all that stuff. But yeah, I worked retail. Um, and then I did graphic design like when I could. And um, eventually I got an internship at a magazine and that internship led to like an assistant design position. So I had did that internship pay? The internship did not pay. Right. Absolutely not. That's yeah. something that I like think about often. And also when I did get a job, it was the lowest paying job I've ever had. It was Can you share how much you got paid cuz I'm happy to share how much I got paid. Of course. Yeah, it was like 22,000 a year. Same. Like that's yeah. kind of what I made starting out. And actually um when I started out in my magazine job, I went from an internship to a managing editor by way of being the office manager for $10 an hour. Yeah. So like I had the masthead credit, except I was making an office manager salary. So my work would start after 6 p.m. So we've done some things. We've done some <laughs> we've things. Some we've things. been there. And I also think that um, 
you know, the, the amount of hours you have to spend is crazy because you can't actually do anything else. You can't have any side jobs or side projects. Like we were doing this and mind you, this is uh, 2008 or something when Jesus, the shit worst was tanking. Yeah. yeah, it was just tanking publishing wise. And we spent like definitely 80 hour weeks. Same. I remember like I launched a fucking magazine in 2007, 2006. And so <laughs> worst timing, an indie magazine, like it was crazy. So um, yeah, so Nick Trotte hits you up, you do this graphic design, you kind of like get your f- footing, you go in. You know, you're like a young kid and I have, I am curious, like now you are who you are. Social media is what it is. Email is what it is. Is there a way that someone who doesn't know you can hit you up respectfully and have you listen to them to check out their work? I'll start with this. When I was first uh, 15, 16, had a computer, started discovering what I was into, I would just reach out to people. I would be like, okay, cool. I'm on your website, your email's right there. Hi, my name's Hassan. <laughs> I am 16 years old. I live in Orange County and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I don't know, I don't really have much to say. And um, there was some people that were so sweet and got back to me. And I always remember those forever. And in a way, there was I'll, I'll also more so remember the ones that didn't get back. Mm. And I'm like, oh, man, like I remember when I was 16, I reached out to so-and-so. They never replied to me. That stuff is really emotional. And I realized that that can be this, a lot of kids that reach out to people. It's the same thing. And um, all I can say is that, and this is a message to all the people that reach out to <laughs> someone they look up to is don't take it personally because we're really fucking busy sometimes. And uh, it's really hard to, to get back in a really thoughtful way to people. Um, that's actually, it's so true. It's like the more vulnerable they are and the more, um, heartfelt and the more you feel sometimes the more difficult it is to respond. So it's not for lack of caring, right? Exactly. It's, it's that I care too much to give you a half-assed answer. All that said, as I've gotten older and I've gotten into the position where I'm, I'm doing something where kids care enough to even reach out to me, um, I understand what it's like on the other side. Um, I definitely find time to respond to to most people. I think DM is the easiest way to get a hold of me. I agree. Just because when you're right there, like yeah. I don't know why psychologically emails are just so much harder. Yeah, it's like a, you're writing a letter. Yeah. And you have to, you know, you have to greet it. You have to sign off. Um, and and then you have this like weird feeling where you're like, shit. Well, I'm not responding to the other work email that I'm supposed to be responding to. That's like really weighing on my soul. <laughs> like, yes. Um, but yeah, I try. I try to find the time. I think it's really important. Um, I think I, I, I respond more so to people who are looking for guidance. Specific guidance, right? Not yeah. just like I'm going to pick your brain. Yeah, pick your brain. Like, do not ever email someone and say pick your brain because, and maybe it's just me, but when I hear those three words, I'm I, I can't. It. Yeah, because you're like, I don't, I have no confidence that you know your questions. Yeah. I need you to know your questions. Exactly. Um, so you are working retail, you have, and you're doing internships and you're doing all this stuff. How do you maintain faith that you're good at something? And actually, what is that first inkling of like frisson or like feeling where you suspect that you're good at something that like no one you know does? that no one, you know, in your family has like been really successful at. You know what I mean? Like what does it feel like when you just can like hear a call inside you, I guess, that you're good at something? 
I think you're good when you're the one most satisfied with your work. Mm. Um, the proof can't come from the outside world and it has to come from your own inside world. So like each and every time you create something, you have to impress the most difficult audience, which for me is me. But what does that feel like when you've impressed you? Insane accomplishment. You, it's like it's like really heavy, expensive machinery locking into place. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, it's like the it's like a spaceship docking to the ISS. I'm just like <laughs> fucking success. Like all this like hours and months and years of engineering and like micro millimeter calibrations are leading to this thing shooting mm-hmm. beyond what you can imagine, and then you know landing there with no probability. And has it always felt like that, even from the time you were like 16 fucking around? It might be easier when you're younger because you don't understand the tools. Mm. So when you even just learn to use one tool, that's an accomplishment. Yeah, you're like pumped. (laughs) Yeah, you're pumped. But as you get older and you have all the tools, it becomes more difficult because um, it's more about decision making and high level thoughts and how you can not just use the tool, but use the tool in a way that no one else uses the tool. Mm. So if people use a hammer to hit nails... Um, can you use a hammer to like carve glass and what kind of effect will that have on the glass? And, you know, I, that's a really stupid analogy, but that's, <laughs> no, I'm, for some reason, I'm really on board with this analogy. I'm okay, like, great. Yes, precisely. <laughs> um, so you have a clothing line. It's called total luxury spa with Daniel Desher, who's the founder of Commonwealth projects. And I was lucky enough to be at the Venice Biennale to see this like video installation called Black News. It's incredible. It's by Khalil Joseph. And you did like the sort of visuals for it. And I, it, it feels in the moment, I was like, this is so visually arresting. And obviously the content is, content is phenomenal. But when I came home and talked to you, you're like, oh, yeah, I did. I did the graphics for that. I was like, this makes so much sense. Um, what is the internal checklist for how you decide you'll work with someone? or on something? Oh, interesting. So um, the so Total Luxury Spa is something I'm a part of. Um, it's Daniel's clothing line, and I do like graphics and direction and stuff for it. But um, I'm definitely like a very big part of it since the beginning. Um, and for Khalil, like, he's amazing. He's like a, a I was just shocked when he reached out. Um, and to this day, I'm kind of like, he's texting me and I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think um, so with, sorry, could you like, I guess I'm trying to like answer I guess, the second no, question. It's the first like, one. it's just, I look at all the work you do and it's like so vast. And I'm wondering like, what is the internal checklist where it's like, these are the boxes that has to check for me to work on this project with someone. We have to have a strong connection. I think that's what I'm coming to terms with is if I'm going to work on this thing and um, put the time and energy into completely constantly challenging myself to make it the best it can be, we have to have a strong connection and they have to have respect for that process. Um, and Daniel is a big brother to me, Daniel DeJure. Um, he's the first person that bought my artwork, actually. Really? Yeah, Daniel's the first person that ever bought my artwork. Um, and I and worked. And this was what, what? What gallery was this? This was the um, heavyweight. Heavyweight. Okay. Yeah. Um, it might have even been before I did a show at heavyweight. He bought well, my your, work. Your first show was at um, the guy who did Milk and Honey. What was his gallery called? Oh, wow, Justin Van Hoy. Yeah. This gallery. This. You crush research. Well, 
I'm also just really old. Like I remember when Justin <laughs> passed and like, you know, like. I yeah. Just, yeah. Okay. You remember this. That's awesome. No, I mean, th that's what I mean by like, you came up at a really beautiful time in California. Like you yeah. had a lot of like, a lot of like invitations for like very collaborative art spaces that don't have to be, have to be as driven by commerce like New York. Like yeah. I have such an idealized time of like when you kind of grew up in in LA so that's yeah. why I'm like yeah like I saw your you know your first like gallery pieces at this gallery I didn't see it in person but like I knew the like I knew of and very much respected the curator so that's awesome yeah so that was the piece that Daniel bought that's amazing yeah <laughs> wow that really brought me back and um that was the first show Justin Van Hoy was so important because uh he told me I was an artist. He's the first person to be like, no, you're an artist. I'm sorry. Like, you can do design shit all you want, but you're an artist, and I need you to be in this group show. And I was like, dude, I don't know what to make. He's like, you'll figure it out, but we need it by this date. <laughs> and he knew artists so well that he knew that, that I was not going to hit that date. So it was, like, well buffered. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is something I always ask for with people now. But um, I think that he really made me believe in myself. And uh, I, I love Justin and I miss him. I guess that's the spirit in which like you collaborate with people even now. Like, but I guess my, my point is like you, you do have money. I mean, you do have offers that are like money jobs or like this, that and the other. Like, is there a type of energy or a type of circumstance where you, in your experience, you're like, I cannot work under these conditions and what are they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, I feel like we all have those conditions and um, the, I'll start with saying that there's a certain like trait you have when you don't have anything ever growing up where you don't know when the next check is going to come or the next meal is going to be on the table. So it's just the common sense in your head in some weird way to say yes to everything um, and never lose an opportunity. So I think like that's something that was so, so satisfying and like, so fulfilling once I overcame that. So once you start, started saying no. Yes. Yeah. And I realized what those guidelines were. And I think, uh, you know what? I, there's so many different guidelines. I can't really pinpoint what they are and what makes me say no. But the one thing it really boils down to is a gut feeling. And that gut feeling is based on so many other factors. You know, I have an algorithm. And it's sometimes as simple as like how the phone call went or um, did someone say, did, did they introduce themselves to me? I've had people just reach out and say like, hey, we have this thing, um, let's get on a call. And I'm like, <laughs> 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 like I actually delete emails now. So yeah. I'm like, I don't even have it there to look at it again. I delete it and I'm like, I don't remember getting it. That was so stupid. I'm gonna let you try again or just don't ever do it again. I have that too, where I just like immediately delete things where I'm just like, I don't need to worry about this. Yeah, yeah. I don't need to worry about this is a better way to put it. And I don't mean to come off as like mean or cocky. It's just actually like I'm more sensitive actually than anything. So I'm like, if people talk to me like this, it's not going to be cool. Yeah. Like I just don't, I'm, I'm whatever, even if you're insecure and fearful and that's what made you reach out to me in this way, like I cannot abide by having a relationship with that energy for the rest of the project. Exactly. So I'm kind of like, mm. but also um, there's there's one factor that I use to to sort of weed things out, and it's um, if I think I can do a good job on it. Um, and there's a part of me that, you know, I think when I'm at my 
best. Um, I think that I'm pretty capable of most things. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it comes down to like what exactly they really need versus mm. like what I, what I like doing. So I can do things, but if I don't enjoy it and there's no fulfillment in accomplishing it, then it's just a job. Um, but if it's something that I'm like, I can really do a good job on this because this is like my pocket, then I'm going to absolutely say yes. Yeah, that, I have that too. You want to recognize your children. Yes. Yeah, fully. Um, so you have often ta talked about like non-monogamy and projects and how that's really inspiring. And I have had the pleasure of collaborating with you. And actually, you're a total dreamboat. Really? Yes. Um, Thank you. You are one of the most fun people to riff with. And you're a really good listener. And you are so like fearless and fun in just building on an idea. And I was really curious. Wow, thank you. It's, it's a very rare quality, especially because I feel like I'm a word person. And when I work with art people, sometimes we're both just like pulling our hair out. And how did you become secure enough in your contribution and your voice to welcome that collaborative trust fall and... How do you deal with that without like the ego jockeying and all that stuff? Like, how did you get here? I think I'm still getting there every day. Um, it has to be fun. It just has to be fun. And that's when it's fun, where a bunch of jazz musicians are in a room and they know their instruments and they know their skills and they know what they can contribute to the conversation or to the song. And everyone's doing that and it's in harmony. And that was awesome when we were in the room together and you were an absolute dream to work with as well. But how did I get here? Because <laughs> you have to know your, you have to know, you have to know that you have one instrument. Yeah. You know, you have to know that like you're good at the thing that you do on your instrument. And then you have to just trust that everybody knows their instruments. Totally. But like, yeah, how did you get there? Because it's, it's not easy. I think it, a lot of that comes down to not to discredit myself and what I bring to the table, but it, it comes down to like who's really putting the band together. Um, and that is a really important thing that I attribute to like choosing projects now too. Because if you really need somebody to be able to riff like that on that level. And I can riff at myself. I can riff at anyone. I can riff at someone that doesn't get it. Sometimes uh, they, they might still be impressed with my words. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think when you riff with someone that can just deliver the exact same thing back and better or challenge you or question it, um, that's when it's magical. And I think I just got there from really believing in questioning everything. And when you question everything, you always look for answers. And when you're looking for answers, you discover a lot of other things that are not the answer. And those are ideas. I guess it's like a fundamental trust that like, you don't have the answer in that moment. And the other person doesn't have the answer in the moment. And no one's pretending to have the fucking answer that we so that we can all go and look for it. Yeah, yeah, totally. So art school. Uh huh. Do you have any regrets not going? Do you still harbor any romantic notions about it? Like, what's your relationship with that, what, what it is? 
Totally. I think there's two angles I approach it. There's design school, which, I mean, it's art school, but for design, I think uh, I definitely, no regrets not going. Um, I think that I would have learned a lot of things a lot faster than teaching myself. Um, I think I would have also learned them way differently. Uh, and I think art school as an artist, like for an art practice, I wouldn't really say regrets, but it would have been really rad to approach what I do from that angle a little bit more. And I romanticize sometimes uh, only for the mere fact that the art world is a whole other universe and like MFAs are so serious and all that stuff. But if I really wanted to like go for like an art practice, I think that that's almost what's necessary in so many weird ways. And I've talked to so many really uh, successful artist friends about that. And they were like, yeah, I was doing great and everyone loved my stuff and it was arguably better back then, but I had to go get an MFA if I wanted a career. Right. So there's that. That, that whole like, just go through the Yale MFA program. Yeah, go like, all right, all right. Going to New Haven, see you guys in two years, <laughs> then to Bard or whatever. But like, all that said, I think um, I really see myself as an art director that makes art. And I think that I'm really happy with where I'm at there and all the self-teaching that got me to the art director position I'm in today, I'm very happy with. And the art practice is always something that brings me satisfaction and sanity. So that's the one that nobody can give feedback on. That's the one that has no Hard and fast deadline and like Yeah, no hard and fast deadlines. Yeah. yeah. No deadline for yesterday. Um, yeah. how do you decide what to charge people and what is the, le like, what are some of the lessons that you learned that help you determine that? So I think I undercharge people sometimes. Why? I mean, obviously that comes from a place. You know what? I undercharge friends. That's what it is. As I, as I said that I started thinking about the things that I've recently undercharged for and I'm like, okay, they're really good people. You're like looking at a carousel of all the homies. You're yes. like, fine. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> sure, dude, you know, it's good. Like whatever, whatever. And, um, yeah, I think how I figure out what to charge people is largely based on just experience. Um, and you know, if, like it goes without saying that I, it, it depends on who they are too. Um, if it's a big company, I'm like, yeah, we're going to need to run the check to be honest because like you guys have massive budgets and you underpay the people that need it the most usually so I'm gonna ask for what I think is fair at the time what's the most you've charged someone and you don't have to tell me like who it is oh shit Jesus. and you don't have to tell me at all either if that makes you uncomfortable oh man well the most I've charged somebody was definitely in like the high five digits. And that was like one of my first really big projects as a studio, so as 1201. And that included a lot of overhead and a lot of people and like designers I brought on, illustrators, all this stuff. So um, I wouldn't necessarily say I charged them that much, but that was what the project cost. That's so sexy. That's ma that's making me deeply happy. <laughs> um, At a certain point, I'm like, this is what it costs, and I'm not charging you this. This is the rate. Yeah, get your fucking rate. Um, when you get an idea, what does your sketching or note taking modality look like? None. I have to just jump and do it. Really? Yeah. Otherwise, it goes away. It doesn't go away. It's just 
there's a certain idiosyncrasies of like having an idea at the moment versus writing it down and getting to it later. Um, <sighs> and I think like you write it down and get to it later, but you're in a totally different headspace later. And like at the moment, like I'm still connected to whatever led me to the idea. So I can kind of backtrack my train of thought and say, um, wait, like what got me here still? And I can kind of pull from that stuff as well and bring that in. But if I wait till tomorrow, I might not, you know, maybe what inspired me was a house music track. And maybe tomorrow I really need to listen to ambient music, but I still need to make something based off of this rhythm that like really brought me an idea and I'm not in that rhythm anymore. So I think I have to just jump and sit down and do it. Two fascinating things. One is that it's like almost like you're you you're like aware that the portal might close. Yes. <laughs> but also, when I brought this question up to you, your body language changed so much, and you got really like um, attentive, as if this idea was happening to you. <laughs> so it was like really, it was like this conditioned like response where you're like, okay, so this is what I do. You went from like yeah. a very urgent sort of thing, which was. Um, so I was I was acting like in yeah, it was exactly happening. what I was explaining. So. Yeah. Um, that's how I have to do it. I have to say it. I have to do it. I have to exact. I have to just execute on the spot, um, and that's really fun. I think. And sometimes I'll be out somewhere, and I'm like, I gotta go. Everyone's like, "What? We just we just ordered." I'm like, "I'll Venmo you, whatever. Bye." And that hasn't happened in a while, but it, when it's really good, I have to I have to just bounce. So when the gut goes, it you go. Yes. No, I mean other people have described this as the dog whistle. Some people have wow. described it as my characters won't stop talking to me. <laughs> wow. um, yeah, uh, Susan Laurie Parks, the playwright, likened when she wrote Top Dog, Underdog, which won a Pulitzer, to, I'm paraphrasing, but to a giant silver gravy boat being poured in her. And she like wrote that thing, I think, over the course of a few days. Wow. And so I really believe in that like big S spirit when you're being like guided. Yeah. No, I mean, that's like, that's. Oh God, that's like the dream. Like, isn't that just like the dragon you're chasing constantly? Yeah, it's like that's the the fun thing, and I think that's where a lot of um, uh, challenges come up with uh, you know client stuff sometimes. Where I'm like, if I don't, I need that spark, and that's when it's super exciting. And sometimes I do get the spark, and then they're like, "Oh, we're not into this thing," and I'm like, "No, this is non-negotiable. <laughs> this is the thing. This is trust the me." All spark. <laughs> yeah, and like that's when I realize like they really gotta trust me when, mm. when they trust me. So trust back to your thing is like a big decision making factor. Yeah. Oh, mutual trust. Yeah, I mean, trust. you're really good at managing up. I've seen you do the fucking conference video call, and you're very fluent in like um, cool company. Like conference room ease, but also like also like the white guy like overbite chat, you know, like yeah. you're you're very, very fluent in both. Um so I have a question about like optics. You know, that's obviously like a huge part of any industry. Do you believe that you have to work with celebrities to get that seismic recognition bump? Like you've done like the Jay-Z stuff, you've done like really high profile things like is there any way around it in your industry if you're being completely realistic and honest in terms of like what that cosign means? Okay, let me start by saying this. I think with the internet age, um, there has been a big uh, shift in what is considered counterculture, like what is really underground. Um, and I think me 10 years ago would have never wanted to work on anything for Jay-Z or Marilyn Manson probably or any of those people that have like such a name. Um, but I think as 
things start merging together and it becomes this one big like mush it's like a tagine of like you know (laughs) things that are like uh, you know we can we can be into all these things and maybe it's also just me getting older and being less punk or something but um i think that yeah at a certain point the the recognition as an adult i can answer and say that that recognition comes as a sign of trust as well like this person really trusted you with what you do and they're this good at what they do and you did it and it went great and I think that just is a testament to anybody that has, you know, res- reservations about bringing you on to something. I'm like, I was like, yeah, I mean, that all sounds good. Like, I hear what you're saying, but Jay-Z was kind of fine with it when, <laughs> when I brought it up. There, You know, I think you just have to, right. you know, and I think people like, yeah, as far as optics go, um, the recognition, though, I... It's hard to say. I think, like, yeah, people want to see more of that, and I think they they see what you do a lot differently when you work on that level. Um, but I don't always want to work on that level, and I continue to try not to sometimes. Yeah, because uh, that like trust and that vibe is still there. This person is still a person, so like, yeah, you you, you might want to work with them, you might not. Yeah, and I think that um, at a certain point too, um, like how how big are these people really like? what's big mean and um i don't know there's some of the most important stuff i've done has been for the smallest tiniest little projects or people or any of those things but um yeah the optics thing is is complex especially as like everything you make inevitably lives on instagram or the internet somewhere but i don't really have an answer to that question i think uh that's fine. Yeah. Um, here's my final question because we have to be out of here. But what do you do for self-care? It's one of those things I'm like just really getting the hang of actually. And it's been really satisfying. But I go on walks. Like I started picking a coffee spot that's like really far. So I get up in the morning and I walk there. It's like just way better. No headphones either. Just like thinking. Um, it sounds very stupid and simple, but like taking a longer walk in the morning is great. Um, I have a skincare routine that I'm really proud of. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> so that's like, I think when I lived in LA and my skin was fine, everything was great. And then I moved here and it was like, Ugh. so I have like, uh, I use uh, biologic research, all products and I have the P50 you do, so you, with the you pigment put 400. Up with the smell. <laughs> yeah. The, and uh, you know, so I have like my typical face wash, my toner, my serum, and then I have uh, rose water mixed with the moisturizer. Nice. Uh, and then coconut oil for my scalp. And uh, that's I, if I do that really slowly and meticulously in the morning, it's like giving myself a massage. Well, you know, it's like the, meditating. Yeah. And I can, you know, profess you do have a beautiful, well-moisturized scalp. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the show. <laughs> Thank you, Mary. Appreciate everything.